When I began my teacher training, despite being a pretty well-qualified and confident 45-year-old with a degree, a diploma and a stack of informal and community education qualifications under my belt from my previous career, I descended into what can only be described as a black hole of total fear and anxiety. It was a kind of disabling panic that I joined a course where I was going to fail miserably, one that was laced with a huge amount of self-doubt, which left me procrastinating over the tasks in the first few weeks, hesitating to put my answers forward and generally spending more time worrying about failing than actually learning. And then I read this part where we are encouraged to ask kids to recognise failure for what it is, feedback in wolf's clothing, rather than something to be avoided at all costs. Somehow it just liberated me from the whole when those asked me to see that failure is just feedback, plain and simple, nothing to be scared of. I'm not saying I'm totally free of it now, but now at least I'm aware of the thought process and I have a new and powerful mantra to repeat when fear of failure strikes. Welcome to Rethinking Education. Education's critical friend. Hello listeners, I have a slightly different offering for you today. To my delight and surprise, the uh, the book that I wrote with Kate McAllister recently, Fear is the Mind Killer, recently featured on a podcast called From Page to Practice, which is a really cool podcast if you haven't heard it before. And it's very clever. <laughs> As somebody who spends absolutely hours recording podcasts, This podcast is genius because they ask people who've read a book and people who've written a book to send in short audio clips talking about why they wrote it, if they're the author, and if you're a reader, why it is that you you enjoyed it and how you've translated these ideas into practice. And so this was published yesterday and I have permission from Rebecca to to cross-post it. Um, And it's quite an international affair. We have Freya in Italy, Dean and Mark in Shanghai, Carol in Cambodia and somebody called Gina, I don't know where she is in the world, um, all talking about this book and the impact that it had on their practice and on them as people. And it's just absolutely a delightful thing to hear that words that I've <laughs> that I've typed on my on my keyboard sitting here in my lounge have had an impact on people and on their children all over the world. It's really quite mind-blowing, really. Anyway, um, without further ado, I will hand you over to Rebecca Nobes, who will introduce this episode of the From Page to Practice podcast. From Page to Practice, applying educational reading in the classroom. in the conversation using hashtag page practice podcast. From Page to Practice is a podcast focusing on the application of educational reading in the classroom. Each episode features one book or article, my reflections and the thoughts of my guests on its use and impact in the classroom. Some episodes may also feature an introduction from the author. Hi and welcome to Series 2, Episode 16 of From Page to Practice. Today we're focusing on Fear is the Mind Killer by James Mannion and Kate McAllister. We've quite the international episode today, as you'll hear from the contributions. As ever, let's start by hearing from James and Kate. Hello, my name is James Mannion. 
And I'm Kate McAllister. And we are the authors of Fear is the Mind Killer, Why Learning to Learn Deserves Lesson Time and How to Make It Work for Your Pupils. So I met Kate in an interview room about 10 or 11 years ago when she was uh, appointing people to join a Learning to Learn team who were tasked with designing and teaching a Year 7 learning to learn curriculum. But before we tell you about the work that we've done and what the focus of the book is, I think it makes sense if Kate explains a little bit about what was happening before then, because she'd been on this journey for about five years before me. So before I met James, I had been looking at what I could do as a classroom teacher and as a head of department to support the learners in my classroom to, to be more effective at learning. I had been watching them for years and talking to them for years and noticing that a lot a lot of the things that seemed to be getting into the in the way of them learning effectively weren't necessarily things that I could control they were things that they needed to be able to control it was about how they were feeling internally what was going on for them emotionally what was going on for them environmentally and how they responded to those things that made a difference to whether or not they could concentrate on what I wanted them to learn. So what began to happen for me was the shift between things being teacher-focused to becoming more learner-focused, to spending more time understanding what was going on for them and what I could do to help. And so I developed a model that was called um, the junior model. We kind of had a, a transitional curriculum for year seven students where we spent a lot of more time getting to know them and that's where my ideas really started to form about making that curriculum much more um, explicit so we didn't leave those things up to chance so that we deliberately taught the kind of learning skills that children would need to apply to their own learning and that's what I really started to do properly when I met James. So we had a competitive selection process uh, to decide who was going to be on this team. And that's a really important thing because in the in the research literature on learning to learn, uh, the, this this job often gets given to what to people who are described as sceptical conscripts, as people who just had a bit of time on their timetable and they were told, right, you go off and teach learning to learn. And the evidence suggests and our experience suggests that if you do that, it, you literally might as well not bother. It won't work. So we had a very committed team of teachers who were going to be working together on this this project. And it was an incredible opportunity where we were given five lessons a week with the whole of year seven to do with pretty much whatever we wanted the, the head teacher really really put a lot of trust in us and we really we that that was a, a very significant thing we felt like we'd been given this incredible opportunity to do something really bold and different and this was at a time when the school was in special measures and so it was a, it was a very courageous move of the head teacher to to go in this direction um, and away we went. So do you want to explain a little bit about our early experiences, Kate, in the first, in the first year or two of running these, these lessons? Okay. So we, we wanted to make sure that what we were putting together was the right thing for the children in our school. So we spent a lot of time together in the beginning doing needs analysis, I suppose, really talking to each other honestly about who we were as teachers and who our learners 
already were and who we felt they were likely to be. We hadn't met them yet. They were coming up in year seven. So we understood um, right from the beginning that we would need to be responsive, that we would need to allow time to get to know our students and to respond accordingly with the right recipe, with the right mix for what they would need. And so we talked a lot about research that we'd read, about practice that we'd already seen, about things that we had developed ourselves individually that we knew we felt worked effectively. And we began to build this recipe for success, if you like, what eventually came to be described as a complex intervention. But we knew right from the get-go intuitively that what we wanted to build was something with lots of different moving parts that would be able to be flexible and respond to the needs of the students, the needs of the teachers, the needs of our local community, so that it would always be relevant to what we wanted to achieve. And it was fun. It was, it was a really different way of doing things, to just brush everything off the table and go right back down to the beginning. If you could start again from scratch, what do you want to put in so that the learners in your classroom are having the best experience they can possibly have? So it was, it was exciting and it was challenging because we had to really ask ourselves where our strengths lie and where our weaknesses lie and what are we going to do about that collectively. So we really worked as a team. And what, what we were doing was modeling what we wanted our students to do. So that kind of honesty and talking and working together as a team and problem solving and being transparent about our thought processes and what was going well and what was challenging and why was exactly what we wanted our students to go through. So then we were able to say, yeah, I th I, this bit's hard. This bit's always difficult. But if you try like this or if you try like that and being able to walk them through the process um, authentically, if you like, we knew what it felt like to be going through what they were going through. And over time, it became much more solid. The bits that we knew worked stayed, the bits that needed developing got developed, and it grew over time and it evolved in the same way that, that their learning skills evolve over time. Yeah, so, so I'll just explain briefly about some of the ingredients that went into that complex intervention, into those lessons, um, and then I'll talk a little bit about the outcomes, and then maybe we'll round off by talking about some of the work that we're doing currently. So in terms of these, these five lessons a week in year seven, most of that time was given over to project-based learning because we, we recognized that the young people in schools, we often set the agenda for what needs to be learned and when and how and so on. And that makes for an efficient use of time, but it's a very top-down, micromanaged way of organizing young people's time and resources. And the question begs to be asked, really, how can they learn to self-regulate in such a top-down, micromanaged environment? And so we wanted to build in lots of time for projects to give them the ability to work on six-week-long projects, so they would be half-termly. So that would be pretty much three of the five lessons. We also would have one lesson a week of philosophy for children, a philosophical inquiry lesson, which there's very good evidence um, that, that, that that leads to all kinds of, of gains for young people in terms of their oracy skills, their speaking and listening skills, their, um, their ability to, to problem solve and to collaborate and work effectively together and so on. 
Um, and we did learning journals as well and and, um, and other oracy-based lessons to really, really help them to develop their metacognition so that they were reflecting on how they were learning. And we were continually asking questions like, how can what we're doing today help you learn more effectively in French or art or music or PE, say? So we were, we were facilitating the transfer of this knowledge, these skills um, and these dispositions from the learning skills classroom out into classrooms and subjects across the curriculum. And the, the five lessons a week in year seven was only the beginning. When that first cohort moved into year eight, the, the curriculum time expanded with them, and then again into year nine. So over three years, that first cohort took part in over 400 lessons of learning to learn, um, which was really incredible. And I realized very early on that this was, you know, a unique, really a once in a career opportunity to, to do something really bold and different, as I say. And I wanted to capture it in the most robust way possible. And so I signed up to do a PhD, and that turned out to be an eight-year study because we followed four cohorts of children from year seven through to year 11, one control cohort, the pre-learning-to-learn cohort, if you like, who had very comparable data at entry to the school, so it made for a fair comparison, and then three learning-to-learn cohorts. And those young people went on to achieve the best set of results that that school had ever seen by some margin. And in particular, the gap closed from the bottom up. So it was especially beneficial for young people from disadvantaged backgrounds. So, for example, at GCSE um, in that first year, the disadvantaged gap closed by over 65% from one cohort to the next, which was amazing. Obviously, that's what we wanted to see. And that's kind of the question that's on everybody's lips. How do we close the gap? And we feel that we've, that we've hit upon a formula for how to do this that closes the gap in a really equitable way. Like non-disadvantaged young people benefit from this in many ways as well, but it's especially beneficial for young people from disadvantaged backgrounds. And so we now work with, with a range of organizations. We've taken this out. Kate has taken this work out into, into other fields, which I'll let you talk about in a moment. Um, and I now work with lots of other schools and organizations to help them to develop self-regulated learning more widely. Um, and so, Kate, do you want to explain a little bit about the journey that you've been on? And then we'll round off with the hive, I think. Sure. So, um so when I left the secondary school that we were working in together, um, my plan was to, to do what James is doing now, to go around working with schools in the UK and helping them to develop learning skills curriculums. And it happened to be at a similar time to what was known then as the refugee crisis in Europe. And I went to the jungle refugee camp in Calais to have a look and see if there was anything that I could do to be of assistance to all the people who are arriving kind of on my doorstep. And what I realized quite quickly was that everything that we had developed to work in schools could equally be applied outside of school. So where people were unable to access formal education for whatever reason, being able to develop um, these learning skills within small groups of people would allow them to, to learn together, to learn alongside one another, to learn from one another. Um, and so I developed this model of pop-up education where you would work with a small group of people, introduce the learning skills through learning projects. And these were all very practical projects, things that people needed where they were. So we, we created a, a kitchen where people could cook together and swap recipes and language and other people could come and eat. So everything had a very 
practical application. And I think that was the next, like the first big step on the rest of my journey was anchoring learning into really relevant life situations, immersive experiences, which I think is often lost in schools. And so I did that where I went to France and did that for a year. And then it grew into an organization called the Human Hive and we trained volunteers and they are they went around Greece and all of Europe and all over the world now. And so it evolved even further. And now, as you can see behind me, probably I'm in a jungly environment. I'm in the Dominican Republic and I've opened an alternative to school, which is called The Hive. So the book the book tells the story of where it started for us, for James and I, um, and the team that worked with us and how we all kind of grew as individuals and how the ideas grew into um, a solid program. And we wrote the book because we wanted to share that journey with you, because we wanted to support teachers who are in the classroom now with developing their skills as educators, and I guess to try and gather like-minded educators together to look at where we can take these ideas next. Yes, indeed. So, so we are we are waiting the next chapter of this story with bated breath, um, as much as anybody else is. So, thank you very much to Rebecca for inviting us to come onto the From Page to Practice podcast. That's easier easier written than said, um, and. Um, and we look forward to to hearing from any readers who've been taking these ideas. The book is packed with re- very practical ideas for how to translate these ideas into other contexts. Um, and so we look forward to hearing from you all. Thank you very much for inviting us on. Bye. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. Thanks for that great introduction to the book. Today we have five readers to hear from and we'll start with a returning contributor and that is Freya. Hi, my name is Freya O'Dowd and I am a teacher, uh, an international teacher currently working in Italy. Um, I read Fear is the Mind Killer over the Christmas period because I was doing a literature review on metacognition. Um, I chose the metacognition uh, for my C-Teach uh, kind of research focus because I'd become really, really interested in um, the IB learner profile. Um, as an IB teacher, I think that it's very, very easy to deliver the IB program in, in quite a, sufficient, a superficial way. And I was really, really interested in drilling down into some of the other core areas beyond my subject. Um, and the learner portfolio, the learner profile, sorry, was an area that I found really, really interesting, you know, in terms of these key characteristics that we wanted to develop within our learners. And actually, when we reflect upon them are quite in, important when, when pupils go off to university and they find themselves um, having to take on uh, even more independence and even more, um, ownership over their their educational um, journey, really. Um, And so I started to embed uh, the learner profile within my lesson, simple reflection tasks, discussion points, et cetera, et cetera, um, giving pupils the opportunity to really reflect upon the knowledge that they garnered, their their response to to critical thinking, you know, their resilience um, and all those key traits that we know um, make up the learner profile. And then I attended the 
IB uh, World Conference and I attended a uh, conference led by Toddle um, on the NYP. And I'm really, really interested in the NYP. I'm, I think that having made the move um, internationally, I really, really favour a conceptual curriculum that uh, is underpinned by knowledge and skill. Um and I like planning in a conceptual way. And so my interest in the MIP has been peaked because of that. But I was also kind of really introduced to the approaches to learning. A colleague had mentioned at the time before, and I was like, what are the approaches to learning? I have no idea, which just goes to show the ignorance that you can have if you're delivering an IB program and not delivering the full IB program, if you like. Um, and so I attended a few sessions on the approaches to learning and, ha you know, explored how other people have been embedding them. Um, and then I read Fear is the Mind Killer over Christmas as part of this literature review. Um, and it got me really, really uh, inspired and enthusiastic to create a learning to learn program um, at my school. Um, and so I took the approaches to learning and I, I fundamentally created this learning to learn program, which will start um, in September and it's going to start small. It's not going to be on the same scale as James's and Kate's, obviously. Um, but uh, it is a start. Um, what I particularly liked about the book, actually, is that the learning to learn kind of um, ethos, if you like, has come in for a lot of criticism. And I, what I what I particularly liked is that it's a really intelligent book in that Kate and James, you know, haven't just uh, jumped on the bandwagon of learning to learn uh, for a year, like it's a fad or something. This is something that they've been doing for 10 years plus. And, you know, Kate has thrown herself wholeheartedly into um, in the school that she's now set up. And, you know, the opening chapters, they look at the criticisms of learning to learn over a period of time. And I found that really, really fascinating to go, yeah, you know what, these programs have come in for some flack. Um, this is what's good about them. This is why they might have failed. And this is what we've done in response. Um, um, so their program was really born out of um, a lot of experience and a lot of reflection um, and a lot of determination to put a successful program in place. And, you know, the ending chapter really concludes with some very strong um, data sampling, you know, to show the impact that their learning to learn program had had on the children within their care. And also, you know, the other aspects that perhaps we um, sometimes don't take into consideration as much as we should. Um, I think the thing that resonated with with me most um and it's so simple, but it's so true, isn't it? For any strategy that you're trying to embed in a school, it's this idea of a complex intervention. If you want something to really, really work, you have to come at it from a number of different angles. And so they built this program that was uh, made up of distinct lessons, but was part of the tutor program, but was then part of the fabric of what subject teachers did day in and day out. And that's really what I've been trying to not push here, but because I have no sense of responsibility to do that, but to, to angle towards you know, so um, we've created or I've created a tutor program. Uh, we do have a couple of distinct lessons. It's not going to be anywhere as near in depth as Kate and James, but it's a start. And then, you know, maybe maybe over time, subject teachers will, will come aboard with more of the sort of approaches to learning, learning to learn facets as well. So, you know, really at the start of it. But what they did for me was they really... Um, or what this book did for me really was provide me with a strategic um, thinking, strategic thinking with regard to implementing a learning to learn program successfully um, 
and the the necessary conditions for that to to exist. Um, it is a fantastic book. It's a really really interesting read, um, and I love that there is an appeal at the end to schools to to come on board with this and to work with them because, as they say, the limitations of their research, although over a sustained period of time, is that it it has only currently existed within one school that they've worked in jointly together. Kate's obviously opened her own school up recently. Um, And so I'm really on board with that. I'm really on board with, um, I'm always on board actually with trying things out and then reflecting upon the success of those and bidding if it doesn't work and obviously continuing with something if it does. I feel very positive about this. I I feel that, you know, regardless of the the iterations over the years that actually we want to create um, successful learners who can regulate their own learning, who can draw upon a range of le- learning strategies as they go through the school. I think everybody's on board with that because the more um, we support pupils to become independent learners, the better the better their educational experience, really. Um, so I loved the book. It's had a massive impact on me and the work that I want to do at my school. And I would definitely say that it's well worth a read. Thank you, James and Kate. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. Thanks for coming back, Freya, and for giving your reflections on this book. Our next contribution comes from Carol, but it's not her voice you're going to hear as she sent a written contribution, so someone else will be reading it for her. Hi, my name is Carol, and I'm a primary school teacher living and working in Cambodia. You can find me on Twitter, at TeacherCarol, where I talk about all the things related to teaching and studying for my IPGCE, which I'm in the middle of right now. I have two favourite parts of the book... The first relates to me as a student. When I began my teacher training, despite being a pretty well-qualified and confident 45-year-old with a degree, a diploma and a stack of informal and community education qualifications under my belt from my previous career, I descended into what can only be described as a black hole of total fear and anxiety. It was a kind of disabling panic that I joined a course where I was going to fail miserably one that was laced with a huge amount of self-doubt, which left me procrastinating over the tasks in the first few weeks, hesitating to put my answers forward and generally spending more time worrying about failing than actually learning. And then I read this part where we are encouraged to ask kids to recognise failure for what it is, feedback in wolf's clothing, rather than something to be avoided at all costs. Somehow it just liberated me from the whole when those asked me to see that failure is just feedback, plain and simple, nothing to be scared of. I'm not saying I'm totally free of it now, but now at least I'm aware of the thought process and I have a new and powerful mantra to repeat when fear of failure strikes. My second favourite part of the book is the way that it makes the case for teaching learning skills in such a comprehensive and straightforward way. Sadly, the idea of teaching kids how to learn together and on their own, regulating their own emotions, directing their own learning journey, seems to have been sacrificed at the altar of knowledge acquisition and tightly controlled Lemov styles teaching. Next year, I start at a new school, which seems much more open to the idea that children need to be children and learn through their social interactions, through talking and play. So I'll be adapting the ideas in the book and trying to apply them to a year one classroom. Luckily, my class will stay with me all day, so I'll get the chance to teach the skills discreetly as a lesson as well as embed them through the curriculum. The book has basically given me back the confidence to teach from the heart again and to put my students back in the centre of their learning journey, and for that I'll be eternally grateful. 
Oh, and we'll be working hard together to not be afraid of failing and to embrace all the valuable feedback it gives us. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. Thanks, Carol. A truly international episode so far. The Dominican Republic, Cambodia and Italy. Where next? Let's hear from Mark and Dean to find out. Hello, Rebecca. Um, My name's Mark Wright, and I am um, one of the assistant heads of teaching and learning from Wellington College International School in Shanghai. Um, James Mannion has been in touch this week to ask if myself and our colleague, or my colleague, Dean Clayden, uh, the other assistant head of teaching and learning, could perhaps record a few comments for you um, based on our experiences of reading um, Fear is the Mind Killer. Uh, That's the book by James Mannion and Kate McAllister. Um, I apologise if the clarity of this isn't uh, perfect. Uh, Dean and I are currently on separate residentials. Um, I'm with the Year 7s, uh, just north of Shanghai in an island, and um, Dean is with the Year 6s, so I apologise if the clarity is not perfect. But we were really keen uh, and absolutely delighted to be asked by James to record something about how we have implemented some of the ideas that James and Kate have shared uh, with us um, into practice uh, here at Wellington. So our actual relationship with James and Kate started, I think it was over two and a half years ago, um, when James and Kate um, were invited out by Joe Dooley, who was one of our colleagues, who unfortunately left us in the last year to go back to Cambridge to be a deputy head. Um, But uh, Joe invited James and Kate out to talk about metacognition, and Oracy specifically. And uh, we were lucky enough to have James and Kate with us for a whole week, working with middle leaders and senior leaders at our school, talking a lot about their experiences from their school at Seaview and how they have developed their, or how they developed their learn-to-learn curriculum. Um, this was absolutely key. Developing this relationship with James and Kate proved to be an, um, a fantastic opportunity for us. It meant that we were at actually able to listen to their ideas, listen to their views, and uh, I think we got a bit of a sneak peek into perhaps what was to come in the book, Fear is the Mind Killer. And because of that, we um, we listened, um, and luckily our um, head of prep, Andrew Willis, and the rest of senior managers completely bought into what James and Kate had spoke about, and because of this, we were able to build learning to learn lessons into our upper prep curriculum. The upper prep for us is year six, year seven, and year eight. And because of because of talking to James and Kate, um, explicit an explicit learn to learn curriculum was developed. So everyone in upper prep now gets one learning to learn lesson um, every fortnight. Over time, um, Dean and I took over from um, Joe and Kate, uh, Joe and Andrew, who started the curriculum off, and we've been able to further develop um, the, the curriculum based on um, based on a lot of the ideas that we read in the book. Um, and my colleague Dean will talk about that shortly. Some of those ideas um, are still going now. Um, we we're lucky enough that we have our own prep learner profile. Um, And this is used from years one all the way through to year eight. And two of the main components of this, of the seven components, are actually to do with thinker or metacognition and oracy. And having those on our curriculum has meant that every subject now has to make sure that they link onto this curriculum as best as possible. 
We've also been um, further developing the curriculum this year to make sure that we tie in with um, our wellbeing colleagues, uh, with Robbie, and also with um, the housemasters. Um, and that means that rather than each subject just having one lesson per fortnight in isolation, we're trying wherever possible to make crossover links so that uh, our students can see the relationship between the subjects and show that we, we've got a bit of joined up thinking. So in effect, we've actually become our own kind of department of wellbeing, learn to learn and house masters. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag page practice podcast. Hi, Rebecca. My name is Dean Claydon. I'm also one of the assistant head teachers at Wellington College International Shanghai. I'd like to say thank you for the opportunity to talk today on the podcast and also to my counterpart, my colleague, Mark Wright, for giving an excellent introduction to the relationship between James, Kate and uh, Joe Dooley as well, actually, who without her, none of this would have been possible if she hadn't have introduced us to James and Kate several years ago. So Mark's given a, a, a good overview of uh, what we've, we've done basically at Wellington College uh, Shanghai. And I'd just like to talk a little bit more uh, about the specific projects and ideas that we've taken from the book and how we've applied them into our own practice. So in year seven, we took the idea from uh, James and Kate to do a campaign. And we started that with uh, using the United Nations Sustainability Development Goals and asking the children to pick a topic that linked to the SDGs. And the children came up with a wide range of different topics from plastic pollution to gender equality. And we basically gave them the opportunity to develop a campaign for all of the pupils in upper prep. So the year seven children were responsible for developing a campaign that would reach their audience of the year six, seven and eight pupils. And I think throughout that process, we had some successes. We also had some failures and uh, some of the children did meet the deadlines. They had a campaign video and they ran their campaigns and some of the children didn't. Uh, in fact, many of the groups did not meet the deadline uh, for them to present their campaign at assembly. So that was a little bit difficult for Mark and I because then we, we initially we thought, oh, we failed the children. But a key thing that we read from the book was actually using the failures and using them as a, as a learning experience. For many of the children when they didn't get to present at assembly, that was the first time that they actually had not achieved something or they had not seen the project go from beginning to end and have a result and have a finished outcome. And that was really, really difficult for some of them. But what we did was we actually regulated their emotions and their thoughts and their behaviours through that process and used it and built it into our lesson plans. So the campaigns were successful for some, um, but not for others in terms of a finished product, but they were successful because they gave us an opportunity to sort of discuss, uh, you know, how we actually feel when we do have failure. And I think really that was a, a sort of key message from the book where we didn't feel as though we'd let the children down because actually the campaign, believe it or not, was not the, the main piece of learning. It was about how they worked as a team, how they worked as a group and how they owned their failure when they actually didn't meet the deadline. 
Another key element from the book that we used was also the importance of oracy. So I'll just talk a little bit more about that. So one of the key sections of the book obviously talks uh, about the importance of oracy and Mark and I certainly use those chapters to help us plan our year eight learning to learn lessons. So basically what we did was we dedicated a whole unit of work to a large Ignite five minute TED talk style speech for our year eight pupils. Uh, we're basically at the end of the year, they had to present a five minute speech to a large audience. And we uh, started off uh, asking the children, what are you passionate about or what do you hate? And we used those two questions to help them to plan, write and deliver a speech. Obviously, as we introduced this, you can imagine that the emotions uh, went a bit wild in the classroom. And I know that Kate talks a lot about sort of riding the emotional roller coaster with the pupils. And we certainly did that uh, with them at the beginning, the middle and the end of the project. Because at the start of the unit, we did a little assessment of their confidence. And needless to say, a lot of them were, were uh, not feeling particularly confident about uh, public speaking. So, uh, but what we did was we worked with our uh, drama team and our English department to try and get some links across the curriculum. And in particular, the drama teachers helped us to develop the physical aspects of Oracy. So we helped the children to um, make sure that their feet were grounded, uh, that they had some breathing techniques and some warm-up techniques. And that really helped to obviously build their, their confidence under the aspects of uh, the physical aspects of, of Oracy. Another key element to making the Oracy projects a success was the regular practice. So we actually built in several low stake opportunities for the children to practice their speeches. So they did that in pairs, they did it in trios, they did it in front of other form groups, they also did it in front of the head teacher. Uh, who came to visit the classroom uh, and that really helped again to sort of regulate their emotions and the more that they practiced it the more they uh, built their confidence um, so I think really for for Mark and I reading those chapters about the importance of Oracy gave us the confidence and the green light to actually dedicate a series of lessons and a large unit to Oracy in itself and I definitely encourage uh, people to to read those those sections uh, if you're thinking of embarking on a, a similar Oracy project. I think for us, the key uh, learning from that was about collaborating with the other departments. And for us really now moving forward, having that sort of transference of the importance of Oracy not just in learning to learn, but across the curriculum is, is definitely a, a key um, part of this project in, in order for it to be successful. Um, so we are now at a point where we're seeing the sort of ripple effect of that because we have a clear vision for our curriculum, which Mark has mentioned before. Um, it's now a lot easier for us to to dedicate and devote curriculum time to those, those aspects of, of Oracy. 
So moving forward, one of the tips that we're looking forward to trialing from the book is the idea of the learning journals. We're looking to use these to help our transference of the skills from learning to learn lessons into the wider curriculum and then being able to transfer back in from their subject areas back into the learning to learn lessons. So that's something that we are going to use moving forward. Another another tip, another strategy from, from the book. And another favourite part uh, from, from the book, actually, that I've used in, in my own teaching is the idea of giving pupils one question in the lesson. And this has certainly helped with those pupils who may test us and try us uh, at certain times when they, they ask questions that are, are particularly uh, frustrating. I think if you read the, the first part of the book, you'll hear some of James and Kate's anecdotes about the learned helplessness that we have amongst some of our pupils. So I would definitely encourage people to try uh, the, the one question technique, uh, asking pupils, are you really sure that you're going to use this question right now? Is this the time for that one question uh, and it's, it's really interesting to see the look on their faces especially for the children that, that are tempted to use their their first question within the first minute of the lesson and you can see the little uh, cogs in their head uh, turning as as you ask them are you sure you want to use it now and then they sort of look at you and then they do a u-turn go back to their team and end up using somebody else to help them um, solve the problem or solve the, the, the question that they had. Uh, so yeah, definitely would encourage people to try the one question technique. Um, so yeah, hopefully I've given you a, a little bit of a background of, of what we've used for the campaigns in year seven, the Oracy project in year eight, and another little couple of uh, helpful tips and, and tricks uh, that I've used from the book listening to from page to practice join the conversation on twitter using hashtag page practice podcast so that's nearly all for today lastly we're hearing from gina i heard about fear is the mind killer in kath mordock's newsletter when i first read it it was so heavy for me sometimes that i need to stop pause reread analyze, contrasting my own experience as teacher and understanding the power that I have right now in my classroom. This book has many different tools for you to apply in the classroom. I strongly recommend this book if you, teacher, are ready to encourage in your environment a failure as an opportunity to grow and learn independently and scaffold the process of learning independently. I find it very interesting because many teachers right now need to switch their mindset towards one that invites everybody to be part of the learning process. Changing the conception of success in the classroom. Changing the importance of the curriculum in the classroom and transferring the work to students that are the ones who are the main learners in a school environment. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag pagepracticepodcast. That brings us to the end of today's episode. Thank you to everyone who's contributed and I hope a few more of you are now tempted to add this book to your reading list. 
There are only two episodes left this year, but three books to cover. Coming on the 11th of July is the second women-ed book being 10% Braver. If this book has had an impact on you at all, then please consider recording a few minutes of reflection on a key chapter or two. At the end of term, there's a joint episode with Heidi Hughes Mentoring in Schools and the Charter College of Teaching Early Career Handbook ready for the new framework in September. If you've read these or used either as an early career teacher, tutor or mentor, I'd really like to hear from you. As per usual, please subscribe to the podcast, share with colleagues and a review on iTunes is always appreciated. Also, my Buy Me A Coffee link can be found on my Twitter profile and that's hugely appreciated too. Looking forward to bringing you two more episodes before the summer term is over. Bye. You've been listening to From Page to Practice. Don't forget to join in the conversation using hashtag page practice podcast. Alternatively, to suggest a book or article or volunteer to contribute to an episode, visit learninglinguist.co.uk forward slash page practice podcast. Thanks go to Kevin McLeod of Incomtech.com for use of the tracks Cheery Monday and Fuzzball Parade, which are licensed under Creative Commons. <laughs>